From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. On February 24th, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, provoking the largest war on European soil since the Second World War. Since then, tens of thousands of people have been killed and millions have been forced to flee their homes, while Russia has faced allegations of war crimes over the deaths of civilians in Ukraine. The Ukrainian public broadcaster, UAPBC, has in many ways been on the front line and has been a vital partner in providing information and reporting on the war for the EBU and its members. To better understand how the organization has adapted to living and working in a war zone, we speak with Angelina Kariakina, head of news at PBC. We discuss how the situation has changed her work as a journalist and how the war has affected her on a personal level. What struck me the most about my conversation with Angelina was a sense of disbelief in what she, her colleagues, and everyone in Ukraine was being subjected to, but also a real determination that came through in her voice and an unwavering commitment to making sure that the story of what's happening to her country continues to be told and remains in the public eye globally. Angelina, first of all, how has the invasion changed your work as a journalist? The invasion has changed our lives, and uh, you cannot actually differentiate your work from your life. It happened in our country, it happened in our hometowns, and of course, it made us think first about security, about our workspace, uh, about where we go after work, where we generally work, what we do. So in many, in many ways, it did change the way uh, we work. It made us think about security first. It's not only about physical security, where we sit, whether we go down to the shelter each time there's an air siren. Of course, it's on our agenda, but it's also about what we report on, what's our, what our stories are like. Professionally, it's a different space and it's different conditions in which we work. There is a martial law in Ukraine and a certain number of rules under the martial law and limitations. It makes sense for us to adhere to those rules. We have witnessed that during the first days, even not weeks, of this full-scale invasion, the way we report and the subject of our reports may really influence the coming strikes of this invasion. We could see that with the reports and with live streams from places that were shelled or attacked, there could be you know, another fire coming in 20 minutes or 30 minutes on, or an hour. For example, if you report on a civil object or just on a residential area that was attacked in a very quick way, there might be a change that the same area will be attacked, but with a more precise strike whenever the Russians are aiming. For us, it was an eye-opening thing 
to see that they're not actually aiming to strike purely military targets. They're also aiming at civilian objects. Our TV towers were attacked. Lots of media offices were attacked, residential areas, hospitals, kindergartens, schools, and so on and so forth. It made us change some rules and we had to do it because of security. It's incredible when you think how something like this uh, and so incredibly violent and dramatic can alter everything. And from, from what you're telling me, it sounds like you had to take into consideration getting all this information to the public, but doing so in a way, after all, that you also looked after the safety of your team. We were lucky to have a very committed team in the very places that were under the attack. All the key regions that were under the direct attack were invaded. Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Kherson, they were all committed to reporting from their hometowns. So part of the staff left and they were working from different places, but part of the staff were committed to stay and still stay. For example, in Kharkiv, you know, the majority of media left, but the public broadcaster stayed there and they're still working in the field while the city is constantly under the attack. They were committed to stay, even though, of course, we as a company asked them to move, to evacuate and to, to stay safe. But it was their, it was their personal decision, their professional decision. And it's something I think that still serves the, the mission of the public broadcaster, keeping people, you know, informed. We've been reporting on the war since 2014. This invasion, this war didn't start on 24th of February. It started eight years ago, actually. And, um, of course, some of us have uh, a big experience on reporting on it. But in that case, there was a frontier. You know where the war took place. There was a certain contact line, you know, that was... Um, <clears throat> documented in Minsk agreement. Of course, it was moving, you know, sometimes several kilometers back and forth, but still you could go to war and then come back if you were not from, from the Donbass. But for the majority of journalists in Ukraine coming from different parts of the country, not, not from Donbass, it was like going there and then going back. Now, each time we, for example, we go to Donbass, we have a full car that is loaded with gas, with water, with Starlink, with, you know, blankets, with food, with everything, because the, sh the shops are basically closed down there. There's massive evacuation from the region. We need to think where we're going to sleep, what we're going to eat, where we're going to get food and gas and everything. It's not like reporting on the war before. You need to have everything that you need with you. And of course, it, it changes the way we operate. It changes our protocols. It changed our needs and things like that. So we all had to reconsider it. Now, as you, as you said, this was a war that in some ways was already well in progress from 2014. But as you were explaining, within a certain demarcated area, uh, so to speak, did the fact that you knew that it was already going on and that there were signs for months uh, before that the situation was intensifying with Russia, did that lead to you being able to make any kind of of contingency plans for how you were going to handle an eventual invasion of the kind that uh, that we had, which was not in the minds of many intelligence experts even 
the one that they imagined. You see, of course, we did have our security protocols and contingency plans. And shortly before the invasion, we had to reconsider them and just sit down all and talk, you know, what we're going to do if this and that happens. But I have to tell you, being in the center of Europe in 2022 made us hope that we're not going to face what we faced. You know, there were so many foreign journalists just before, shortly before the invasion. And I remember talking to an old acquaintance of mine from Bosnia who was telling me, listen, this, this, this doesn't look good. You need to get more prepared. And we were sitting in Kiev, you know, and Kiev was perfectly fine. The restaurants were open, gas stations, theaters, shopping malls, everything. I told him, listen, I don't believe that this sort of, what's the right word, of, of massacre can just take place. I, I really, I couldn't believe it. Apart from the fact that I didn't believe it, I could see that Ukraine was doing everything to stop it or to prevent it. I know that the Ukrainian government, I'm not justifying, um, you know, Ukraine, especially after this article in the Washington Post, you know, that the Ukrainian government was very much informed uh, about the fact that the invasion will take place indeed. We could see that for the past several years, the, the government and the president was doing everything to prevent this uh, sort of events taking place. I, I couldn't have ever imagined that there will be Russian tanks in the suburbs of Kiev, in the village where I live, that these people will be looting our houses, raping our women and just killing civilians. Uh, I remember um, when, when the Russians already entered Kiev suburbs, I remember some people texting me that, listen, we see reports from the local people, because the network was really bad there, that the Russians are killing civilians in Bucha. And I thought to myself, why would they kill civilians? I mean, it makes sense that they were looking for the war veterans, you know, for anyone who is connected with the military. I just couldn't imagine when we entered Bucha and that we could see the bodies with our own eyes, with the tight hands behind their back and with the shots in their head, that things like that could really happen, could really take place. This is why I, I don't feel bad about the fact that I couldn't believe it. I think it's a normal reaction of a normal human being living in a European country with the rule of law that you, you cannot believe in things taking place. You've mentioned the, the bodies, uh, the, the images of these bodies that we all saw all around the world in Bucha in particular, but not only in Bucha, but those were certainly the first ones that made their way around the world. Covering something like that for any journalist is difficult, but when you're doing it and you're from there, from that country, from an area not very far away from where this uh, happened, what's the feeling like? How do you separate yourself at that point from being from being a journalist with this idea that we have that we can keep a kind of step back and observe, it becomes very difficult at that point, doesn't it, to just observe it and tell it in a kind of sort of traditional journalistic way. It was and it is so wild and so senseless that when you think of it, 
you just, uh, well, you, you really don't understand why things like that can ever uh, take place. Like, you know, the, the cars with the whole families that were blown up for nothing. For example, when you travel from Kiev, all the roads around Kiev, especially its western part and northern part, were covered with civilian cars that were shot at indiscriminately. And each shot car uh, is, uh, is a dead person or, or a dead whole family. You just cannot make sense of it. But at the point when we were working with it. I just remember my own feelings and I remember our discussions with, you know, editorially with, with the reporters. This work that we were doing, it, it gave us sense why we are witnessing this. Because actually when, when you are witnessing it, it, it makes just no sense. When you see this, you know, it, it makes no sense in, in, in human dimension, in ethical dimension. You just don't understand why. why why this happened. But when you report on it, it gives you sense. Journalism is an empowering thing. On one hand, it, it really makes you face these terrible things. Of course, we had some journalists uh, and I could see it from some of my staff. I really have to say not, of all, uh, not all of us are as brave and as mentally stable as, as some of us are. So not, it, it wasn't a job for everyone. So we needed to take decision who is going into the field and who is going to a funeral or exhumation or whatever it is. We, we needed to take this decision. So this journalist is, is capable of you know, doing that story. And this journalist is not. He or she is going to do some other job. I remember my own feelings watching these numerous bodies in Bucha, thinking about the fact that I will report on it, that it's so terrible that I need to tell the world about it that I'm going to tell the way these bodies are situated, that I'm going to say how all these people were, that I'm going to dig out their stories, that I'm going to talk to their families, and that there is a reason for me to talk to them. Because every story of a killed person, for us, it's, it's a conversation with a family. We did the story about a man who lost his wife and two kids in front of his eyes in the car when they were escaping a uh, Kiev suburb. They were leaving Bucha and their car was shot at. The guy lost his leg and his wife and two small kids were killed in front of him. He needed to just get out of the car and someone took him to a hospital. And I'm not sure if he feels lucky to survive at all. But there was a reason he had to tell this story. It's a senseless and terrible thing, but there's a reason you need to tell the world, the world needs to know that these things are really uh, taking place. And this simple idea, this simple thought gives you strength and gives you reason to wake up, you know, each day and, and to do things. like. That. But I have to say, it's, all, it's, it's half a year of this war and I can see that some of the journalists are, are burned out. And maybe some of them have to take a break from some of the stories. I try to be attentive uh, and to see who needs a break, who needs to switch their mind and do some other stories, and we try to balance it. I find that idea uh, very powerful, uh, that idea that you shared with us, that being able to tell the story gave you and, and your colleagues a purpose and made some sense out of the senselessness of it all. Journalism is kind of a safe house for us, even though it's one of the 
least safest places and professions right now. But psychologically, in, in, in circumstances like that, you need to be busy with something that makes sense. You need to be busy with something that will bring at least some sort of impact, justice, or anything that you think may, may help in, in the future. This, this war, the, the Russian war against Ukraine, is unprecedented on one hand uh, in terms of the number of the atrocities and war crimes committed here. On the other hand, on the openness, in terms of openness, and to the victims, to the places where these atrocities and possibly war crimes took place. This is why I think this war is one of the most documented in world history. This is why for us, doesn't matter how many stories we tell, it's, 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 it's not enough. There are thousands of them. Even though we work across the whole country, it's still not enough. But we understand that it makes sense to make another story about another car, about another person, because uh, it's documentation. And there's a high chance that one day the person who is, or the regiment, or the brigade that is responsible for this atrocity will be established, and these people will be brought to justice and hold accountable for what they did. We've been talking about some of the ugliest moments of this uh, conflict, this war that Russia started on the 24th of February. But there have been some moments during this period that have shown in some ways the best of humanity as well. Ukrainians rising to help other people who were injured. So many images, positive images within the ugliness of, of the war. Do any of those uh, strike stand out to you? Oh, absolutely. This war is not only about tragedy and loss and crime. Uh, it is about it, but it's also about um, unprecedented solidarity and uh, humanity and volunteering. Each place where you go covering this war, you're always getting uh, help from the people who are helping someone else. I mean, you can always find someone who will share something with you, be it, you know, a shelter, a bomb shelter, or food, or sometimes even life vest, or network, or, or anything. It is really inspiring that I think for many of us, Mm, gives strength and and reason to keep on you know resisting and keep on fighting so it's it's incredibly inspiring i also have to say that apart from the fact that there's a war uh, going on in ukraine ukraine is a fully operating country there are you know businesses open uh plants open people go to work you know it's um, it gives this sort of paradoxic um picture that you think that it's like evading reality or closing your eyes on, on what really happens in the country. But on the other hand, many people who are fighting on the front line, the military, they say openly that, listen, we are fighting for this, that you have a chance to go on with your life, that, that our children can, be, can feel okay and safe in their own cities, that apart from the fact that they stayed, that f some families stayed in the cities like Kharkiv or Mykolaiv or uh, Zaporizhia, yeah, there's, um, 
there's part of a normal life that is left in these cities and that all of them can have a chance to go to a shop, to have a coffee, you know, to see something good and to have this, this part of normal life even even as we fight, because we fight for basically for our lives. Have you been able to focus on any of those stories to inspire people, to give them something to uplift them, stories about life going on as normal or stories that are not directly related to the war? I think the majority of our so-called war stories are stories about resilience. So whenever you talk to a family who lost a loved one, uh, whenever you talk to someone who had to go through some sort of you know terrible experience like the man that I told you about, it still has this element of resilience and of readiness to go on with our lives and to do something for our, our communities to, to help one, one another. So I think the majority of our stories are just like that. You don't feel hopeless while, while um, reading and watching these stories, even though they are sometimes just absolutely um, terrible. But on the other hand, uh, you know, <laughs> the majority of our stories, of course, are connected to war. I mean, when you talk about prices, when you talk about economy, when you talk about energy, when you talk about culture... It's, it's, it's all related to state budget, to the way people, to the mobility of people inside the country. You, you cannot omit the story. You cannot, you know, uh, just pretend that there is something that is not affected by the war. It's a terrible full-scale invasion that affected all, all spheres of, of life um, in Ukraine. And uh, whatever you report on, of course, there's... there's a reason why something is not happening or something is happening uh, on the contrary. What's it been like to have so many foreign colleagues all over uh, Ukraine? I know there have always been foreign journalists in Ukraine before, but probably never as many as were there, especially right after the beginning of the invasion. What's the relationship been like and have you felt... uh, supported by them? And have you been able to give them guidance, uh, support as well, and understanding the situation as it's been unfolding? Oh, sure. We, we felt lots of support and we received lots of support, by the way, by, by the EBU as well to the Ukrainian public broadcaster, which we're really grateful for. I think foreign media do marvelous job in Ukraine, risking their lives as well and reporting uh, extensively uh, from the field. But um, I need to say that we understand, as cynical as it sounds, whenever it's not a breaking news story, these crews will leave Ukraine and they will refocus and we will be left, you know, with, with the same situation here. So we know that this attention has a term. It's, it's, not, it's not long. So my concern or advice, if I may, would be, of course, to contextualize this war, to look deeper into the reasons why it takes place. It's not a half-year story. It's not a several-month story. It's not even an eight-years-long story. It's, 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 it's a hundred years of, of, of history. 
of oppression from the Russian Empire in different of its forms. Ukraine, I think, is an underreported country and Ukrainian society is an underreported society. For many years, for many decades, we could see that big foreign media used to cover Ukraine sitting from Moscow. They would have their head offices in Moscow and then report on something interesting or exotic like Ukrainian elections or protests or Eurovision Song Contest or something like that sitting from Moscow. It makes difference if you stay in this country, if you travel this country, if you know what this democracy is about. U- Ukraine is not Russia. It's, it's a very known saying by the former president Leonid Kuchma. Ukraine is a completely different country with completely different internal structure. And, and the way our democracy uh, operates is, is very interesting and is very vivid. It's, it's a big country with different regions. And each, in each place, there is a different dynamics between the local government and the central government. When you stay in this country, when you report on it, working from the field, and this is what the journalist should be about, reporting from the field, what you can really see and witness. Of course, it gives you a completely different picture. Uh, and in, in this regard, uh, I'm, I'm happy that many media reconsidered their presence in Ukraine. They opened some of the offices and bureaus in, in, in Ukraine. Ukraine is not only about war, and there's a reason why Ukrainians fi- fight like this, why Ukrainians operate like this, why Ukrainians are resisting and, um, and keep on working and living the way they do. I think it should be interesting for the media, whatever happens next. Thank you so much, Angelina. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and telling a friend about us. Thank you.